This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with David Wallace-Wells his recent essay appearing in New York Magazine titled The Inhabitable Earth, Famine, Economic Collapse, A Sun That Cooks Us, What Climate Change Could Wreck Sooner Than You Think. David, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, David's, uh, uh, Mr. Wright's, excuse me, bio is posted on the podcast website. On background, listeners may recall my March 31st interview with Dr. Jonathan Patz concerning the February 16 Climate and Health Conference, sponsored in part by the American Public Health Association after the CDC abruptly canceled its Climate and Health Summit in January. Listeners may also be aware of the Obama administration's lengthy April 16 report titled The Impact of Climate Change on Human Health and about the limited to be polite response by the Professional Medical Association after President Trump issued an EO or executive order to listen regulations on the use of fossil fuels and to begin review of the Obama administration's Clean Power Plan initiative in Trump's June 1 withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord, both via essays by me posted on the podcast website. Again, the facts are the Earth is warming due to an increasing accumulation of greenhouse gases we dump into our atmosphere. As former VP Al Gore has stated, we treat our atmosphere, quote-unquote, as an open sewer. As a result, U.S. temperatures have to date increased by approximately 2 degrees Fahrenheit, and most of this warming has occurred since 1970. For a useful and somewhat shocking illustration of this, see the bell curve shift in U.S. temperatures since 1950 in the July 28th New York Times article by Popovich and Pierce. A warming Earth is today having profound negative effects on our environmental and, not surprisingly, our health status, since they are largely one in the same. With me to discuss climate change or so-called fossil capitalism's impact on human health is David Wallace Wells. So with that uh, somewhat lengthy uh, introduction, uh, David, in my mind, uh, this subject has been begged, or an essay like this has been begged for some while. So my first question is, what prompted you to write this? Well, it's sort of a um, it's sort of a, a long saga, but I think, like a lot of your listeners, probably like a lot of people they know, I've been somewhat casually, um, but with great anxiety, following the sort of news on climate change over the last, you know, several years. And the deeper I looked into it, the more um, I was struck by how much of the most shocking um, findings from the sciences and projections from even the sort of moderate and conservative um, climate scientists were um, being, I wouldn't say quite, but they were not being talked about so openly in um, the, the media and among people who are kind of a little less engaged about climate. And what that meant was that I think the public was sort of taking um, what the UN and associated bodies would call the sort of median outcome for climate change and thinking of it as something like the worst case scenario. So just to back up a second, that were um, the kind of likely outcome for the planet will be about 
two or a little two degrees of Celsius or a little higher of warming by the end of the 21st century. And um, I think a lot of people, you know, a lot of lay readers, a lot of um, casual, you know, climate realists understood that that was um, what that would mean in terms of sea level, and they were worried about it. But I think people didn't quite appreciate that it was also possible, um, especially if we didn't take aggressive action on carbon emissions, that we could get considerably warmer than that. And I also think that they didn't appreciate all of the threats that that scale of warming would pose beyond the rising sea level. In my article, I talked um, through about seven different scenarios, the, the effect of uh, heat stress in which parts of the world could conceivably become so hot that you wouldn't be able to um, really do any physical labor outside without suffering from heat stroke or dying, um, on uh, disease, you know, the migration of um, tropical diseases whose footprint will grow as the planet warms, on agriculture, this is one that's really sort of scary to me, um, grain production drops, depending on where you are in the world, um, by about 10 or 15% for every degree of warming you get. So conceivably, by the end of the century, we could end up with something like 50 or 75% less food to feed a planet that has as many as 50% more people. Then also walked through um, some more speculative research on conflict, which grows um, the warmer the climate is, on economics, which we have less growth when, um, when the climate is warmer, and several other areas. And it seemed to me that while this was all really exciting and much talked about in the scientific community, um, there had been a sort of, it had been sort of gated out of public view. And the result was that people like me knew that climate change was real and that it was going to be um, damaging, but that we didn't really appreciate that every aspect of human life on the planet would likely be affected in some way or another, um, even if we managed to hit you know, the, the goals that were set forward in the, in the Paris Climate Accords, um, which is calls for about, you know, limiting um, the warming to about two degrees. And, you know, that, that would be great if we do that. I think it's a bit unlikely, but not impossible. But even if we do stick to two degrees, we're still talking about a lot of sea level rise, probably tens of millions of climate refugees at least. And on each of these other metrics that I talked about, you know, these aren't binary. It's not like Either you can't go outside without dying or everything's fine. Um, in each case, every little tick upward of temperature that you get has an effect. So even if we're at you know, 2.2, 2.3 degrees Celsius, um, that's a lot worse than 1.8 degrees Celsius, even if, it doesn't, even if we don't get all the way to, say, 5 degrees or um, the upper end of the UN's um, projection for where we'll be if we don't do anything, which is 8 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. Okay, thank you. Uh, yes, your essay uh, describes um, fairly dire consequences if we get, say, north of 5 to 6 to 7 degrees Celsius. And in this uh, fairly lengthy essay, you, your categories are heat death, the end of food, as you suggested, climate plagues, unbreathable air, permanent economic collapse, and poisoned oceans. I was actually going to begin by reading your first paragraph which is, let's just say, uh, has the effect you may have intended. Um, it certainly gets uh, people's attention. So let me just pick up on, uh, uh, you did mention, so you did mention uh, uh, reductions in, in grain production because of increased heat and more, um, uh, less rain 
uh, heat death. In fact, since I mentioned Al Gore, he already, in his presentation, cites several cities around the world are really, if not uh, soon, are maybe today uh, largely uninhabitable. Um, let me just ask you about, you did mention refugees, but let me drill down a bit more on, since this is a healthcare policy podcast, climate plagues. What was your, what was your finding there? Well, you know, none of this material is really my finding. It's, um, it's, a synthesis, you know, I, I took yes, these, yeah. I took, yeah, but just to be clear, I want everybody to understand, <laughs> I was, um, I took the, you know, these UN projections, which say that if we do nothing, um, if we take no action on carbon emissions, um, that we're likely to end up about five degrees warmer by the end of the century, and the upper end of their probability estimate is for eight degrees of warming. I took those two um, benchmarks to a number of scientists with specialties in subfields and sort of asked them to walk me through their best understanding of where that would leave their subfield. So the, um, the section on disease, I had, um, I talked a little bit about um, diseases that are, are have been frozen in um, the Arctic and in the um, subarctic permafrost, um, some of which are older than um, humans are, so that means that human immune systems have never encountered them. Mm-hmm. And um, there's, you know, there's there's a lot of skepticism that these diseases pose a dramatic danger to humans because the thawing out of them is believed in most cases to kill them. But there have been some instances already where we have had um, diseases for, that have been frozen for at least decades and, and possibly centuries that have come unfrozen and infected and even killed um, people. There was a kind of dramatic case of anthrax um, coming out of a frozen reindeer carcass that had been frozen for at least 75 years, probably more, in, in Russia, uh, I think in 2015. Um, but the more dramatic effect on disease is actually, uh, most most of those studying this material would agree, on diseases that we know about already. So dengue and malaria and Zika, um, these are mostly tropical diseases, mostly uh, mosquito-borne. Um, and the worry is that as the planet warms, the um, the area of habitability for mosquitoes will increase, which means that um, parts of the world that didn't used to have to worry about malaria, say, will have to start worrying about it because the mosquitoes will be carrying it there. And then also, heat has an effect on it. You know, that varies from um, from uh, pathogen to pathogen, but um, has an effect on the actual reproduction of the disease itself, and in some cases can multiply the rate of reproduction as much as tenfold, um, which means that these diseases, once they do um, reach into new territory, will multiply and spread much more quickly than we're prepared to deal with. And, you know, the Zika case is is kind of an interesting one. It's complicated, um, and uh, I would say, at least at the moment, I think we don't really have a clear understanding of exactly um, why, not just why Zika spread um, into new parts of the world when it did, which I think we have some sense of understanding about and does have a lot to do with warming, but also why the um, disease began to produce these dramatically different outcomes um, in those who were infected, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, we've known about Zika for a long time. Um, in certain places in the world, it's been around for decades, but had never before been seen to produce these really dramatic and horrifying birth defects um, in pregnant mothers. And some scientists believe that probably those effects were present all along, and the um, medical 
apparatus um, in the places where the disease was originally were just weren't sophisticated enough to notice the correlation. Others believe that um, the disease is, you know, possibly requires some an infection. You know, the the, the mother be carrying carry. Um, an additional infection that interacts with Zika in a way that produces a birth defect, but it's all quite speculative. And the most sort of the sort of upshot for me was, you know, these diseases, even those diseases that we think we know relatively well, can change and become much worse for us. And um, while you can't make concrete predictions about particular diseases and how they'll evolve necessarily, most of the scientists whose work I read and the scientists I spoke to thought that, you know, warming was not going to make disease better, um, that taken overall, there were going to be more public health crises and more infectious disease problems coming down the pike. Yes. In fact, since I mentioned the Obama report, these are typically termed vector-borne uh, diseases. Right. You do note uh, relative permafrost. Uh, some scientists are suspecting smallpox and potentially bubonic plague being released or trapped and released uh, from ice. You also do note that uh, malaria, you know, at a World Bank estimate by 2015, 5.2 billion you cite uh, could be reckoning uh, with it. Let me go on to this issue of, of, of you mentioned uh, James Hansen's uh, scientific reticence uh, comment. Uh, and yeah. The, and the question is, uh, how well is the public being served by climate scientists? Uh, you note, again, uh, Hansen's scientific reticence criticism, uh, that is that climate scientists have not been completely honest in communicating how dire the threat is. You give some suggestion as to what explains this reticence, but could you say more? Well, I think that, um, it, you know, this, the, this issue of climate change is really a complicated one, um, and many of these scientists who have devoted their lives to studying it and sort of spreading the word about what's happening are also, because they are scientists, temperamentally disinclined to hyperbole. They're kind of naturally cautious, careful people, and they're trained professionally to um, be absolutely um, careful and, you know, especially about giving full context and explaining uncertainty um, whenever discussing a new finding or writing about a new finding. Um, and I think that that's valuable. I mean, that's really what we want from scientists. We want them to be careful. But it's also been the case that, especially over the last couple of decades, as climate denialism has become um, a really uh, problematic feature of political discourse in America, that many scientists have become even more uncomfortable with anything that might seem like speculative science or projections that they fear they may come to regret later on if they're called to account for them. And I think that that's had a kind of chilling effect on their um, their role in, in public life and uh, on the kind of advocacy side of things. And many of them don't think of themselves as advocates, but many of them do. And even many of those who don't do engage in, in a lot of public speaking and, um, you know, sort of universally, it's understood that it's valuable information to get out there. The question is, what kind of information um, is helpful in terms of raising alarm and what is harmful? And, you know, personally, my feeling is, I mean, I'm a journalist, I'm not a scientist, and my feeling is that the case would have to be extremely, extremely strong that 
um, the public would, you know, that the public couldn't handle or would likely mishandle scary information for me to really take seriously the idea that we should be withholding it. Um, this is, you know, all of the stuff that was in my article came from papers that were published in the best journals in science and the nature and from scientists who are at, you know, inc- incredibly credentialed scientists working at, you know, major research institutions. And um, it wasn't like any of this was controversial science, but it did cause a bit of a stir when it was published because it was as though I was, you know, letting out some family secrets into into the public. And I think that's because um, a lot of scientists are worried that people could become too scared um, or sort of give up hope, and that if they hear too much about the tail risks of climate change, that they're not likely to be motivated to take action to prevent them. And, you know, on a kind of personal psychological level, I do understand that, I suppose. I sympathize with it in the sense that if you've spent your life in any kind of advocacy work, you see people around you who get burnt out, who give up, who abandon the cause. But I think that when you look at the general public, I just think it's personally, I think it's incontrovertible that complacency is a bigger problem than fatalism and that many, many more people are not scared enough about what could happen with climate change than are too scared. And given the sort of stakes of um, the stakes of the issue, I almost don't even understand what too scared would mean. So my own goal in writing this article was to um, shake our complacency a little bit to scare people, um, to be frank about it, um, by showing what worst-case scenarios would bring about. And, um, you know, I want to be clear here, I, I, I tried to be clear in the article, too, that I don't think that many of these um, worst-case scenarios that I sketch out will come to pass. I think that we'll um, avoid many of them, all of them probably by a fair margin. But as I said before, none of these issues are binary issues where either we have climate-related conflict or we don't. You know, it's all along a spectrum. And the more that we can do to forestall forestall warming now, the better off we'll be in each situation. So knowing a little bit about what the absolute worst-case scenario is, for instance, about climate's effect on economic growth, I think may motivate us um, to be more aggressive in taking action that will make our short-term, medium-term um, economic situation a little healthier uh, in terms of climate. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. To emphasize your point, uh, you're probably aware that this last general election campaign, there was basically no discussion uh, by the major candidates uh, on this uh, subject. Um, let me go to, uh, not that you'll be shocked, uh, your essay uh, published now a little more than uh, three weeks ago, uh, not surprising, has received some criticism. I, I saw uh, one person termed it extinction porn. Uh, I'll not indulge that comment. Um, I, I don't want to go down the road where I ask you to respond to XYZ criticisms, but I will ask you, um, knowing what you know now, is there anything you would have changed in drafting this essay? Well, um, you know, in, in response to some of the pushback from um, climate scientists, and I should say, you know, the overwhelming response was positive, and and the um, the article was actually a kind of a sensation beyond our wildest dreams. It's now been 
read by more than four and a half million people. It's the most read story in New York Magazine history, which is amazing for a story on climate, since editors have long felt that that was an issue that was sort of kryptonite right. to readers. Right. Um, right. And even among the scientists, I've been, you know, over the overwhelming um, response has been positive, but there was this kind of vocal um, group who, yeah, took some issues, I would say primarily with the alarmist um, framing of the story, although um, a few of them also circled some particular fact points that they took issue with. And in response to those fact points, um, we actually rushed together a fully annotated version of the story, which is basically unprecedented in magazine journalism, um, where just a few days after we published the story, we published a second version where every single fact had a footnote and some discussion of where it came from to really show my work. And I think um, there were a couple of things that, a couple of points in the piece that I agreed with some of the critics lacked some context. I don't think that I made any um, factual errors. They weren't things that if I were writing a different kind of story, I would worry about issuing a correction for or anything. Um, but there were, there were a couple of points that could have been contextualized a little bit better um, and in the annotated version, I did try to explain on each of those points exactly where I was where I was coming from. Um, in general, you know, I would say um, basically no. I don't. I don't really think that I um, that I erred in my approach to the subject. There was sort of um, one detail that I um, or sort of possible scenario or set of circumstances that I talked about in, near the top of the piece having to do with the melting of permafrost um, oh, and the methane, in the right. Arctic, right. the methane right. release from melting right. permafrost. Right. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a wheezy subject, but basically in the permafrost there is all of this trapped carbon. When the permafrost melts, that carbon will be released um, into the atmosphere, some of it as carbon dioxide, some of it as methane. And methane is, a in the short time period, a considerably stronger greenhouse gas than mm -hmm. carbon. So there's a worry that um, should some significant portion of that be released um, as methane, that the effect on warming would be really dramatic. And um, while it's not true that this is all going to happen at once in some single dramatic release, um, the UN's estimate is that uh, it will all of the permafrost will likely be or close to all of the permafrost will likely be um, unfrozen by the end of the century. So we are dealing with this. Um, this is like a real, a real threat. And I put it in the piece in order to illustrate um, how much uncertainty governs everything that we know about the projections that we do have. So um, this is really a wild card factor that could significantly upward upwardly revise our estimates for warming, or may not have much of an impact at all if most of the um, carbon is released as CO2. But we don't know, and that means that even the things that we think of as a kind of gold standard projections um, are have a lot of uncertainty built into them, and things could be considerably worse than they project. In retrospect, I probably, since this caused so much controversy, um, mainly from people who thought that I was suggesting explicitly that all of the permafrost would disappear immediately and all of the all of the carbon would be released as um, as methane. Um, I probably should have used another example to illustrate the kind of uncertainty built into all of these projection systems. Um, but aside from that, I think basically I was um, I was responsible in giving readers a tour of 
the worst case, the best science we have about worst case climate scenarios. And I was explicit that that was what I was doing. So to the broader criticism of um, that the piece was alarmist, I feel I felt as I wrote it, I felt as I was being criticized for it. And I feel now that um, that was really exactly what I set out to do and that I was quite explicit about that in the piece. And I do think that there is a quite strong argument that um, we should be more alarmed than we are. And that one reason that we haven't been as alarmed as we should be is that most of us lay readers, lay consumers of climate news, have not really confronted the entire worst half of the probability curve of what could happen. We've really, really just been focused by our media and by um, our scientists on the better half of the probability curve. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to sort of do what I could to shake that up. Well, there are, as you know, certain wild cards in all this. Trapped methane, of course, is one and could be substantially uh, problematic. You certainly, uh, per your mention of readers, you did achieve the intended effect. So congratulations there. Let me let me ask, in preparing this or researching this article, I have this question uh, written differently, but might, let me phrase it this way, and that is, did you talk at all with uh, the medical community uh, from what their concerns are, what their contributions are? Uh, the reason I ask is because, as I've noted previously, uh, largely with the exception of the American Public Health Association, the professional medical community has been, uh, let's just say, missing from this uh, conversation. In fact, um, only a few months ago did 10 associations form the so-called Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health, and all they could say about U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Accord was, and I quote, it's the wrong choice that puts Americans at unnecessary risk. <laughs> so with that... Any any discussions with, uh, again, uh, the medical community? Well, not as narrowly defined. I mean, I spoke to some um, public health academics, I spoke, but I mostly spoke to um, climate researchers who were focused on the health effects um, and some economic, uh, economists and um, who are also working on that in that okay. area. Okay, good enough. Let me, let me go on to, you do conclude uh, your essay by touching on solution possibilities. Uh, you reference a carbon, the carbon tax issue uh, that may, um, at this point you say, not be sufficient. And just as an aside, uh, the last time that Congress wrestled with this issue was eight years ago. Uh, but you also note, uh, even if there is a national carbon tax, you note that may not be sufficient, that carbon capture... Uh, you know it may be necessary, although it's untested, and some projections estimate it could cost several trillion dollars. So relative to the solution side of the equation, um, how optimistic are you after having done all this research regarding our efforts uh, to keep the planet from warming by as much as, uh, let's say, 4 degrees Celsius or a little bit more than uh, 7 degrees Fahrenheit? I would say that I'm fairly confident that we'll be able to do that. I would say that it is likely that we stabilize the climate system um, somewhere between two and a half and three degrees of Celsius warmer than we are now. Um, I think that our actions have been far too slow to this point, but I also think that um, 
many of the as you know as the effects of of climate change become clearer and as you know the public comes to understand it's um how many features of our our life on this planet are affected by it i think that we that we won't have any other option but to take action mm-hmm. um you know i i i i have to sort of endorse jim hansen's assessment of the um you know the limitations of a of a carbon tax system. I think that that will be really meaningful, but um, not sufficient. But I have hope for technology. I think we're a quite resilient species, and um, especially for carbon capture, I'm I'm much more skeptical about geoengineering, which seems much more dangerous to me. Um, which just to clarify for your listeners, um, basically carbon capture is devices that extract carbon from the atmosphere. And geoengineering um, broadly refers to things like injecting aerosols into the atmosphere so that um, more sunlight is reflected back at the sun, which means that the planet itself could um, have more greenhouse gases without um, warming quite as much. Right, you make mention, yes, yeah. For instance, there's another one I don't mention, which is um, a lot of people think that we could um, do a lot by massively increasing uh, a particular kind of phytoplankton in the ocean, which eats carbon and produces oxygen. Um, And that one seems a little less concerning to me than the aerosols in the atmosphere. But again, these are really fragile ecosystems, and I think dramatic interventions in them um, are likely to cause many unintended consequences. So I'm much more hopeful about carbon capture. And there are already existing technologies that can do this, can extract carbon from the atmosphere. It's just that they're far too expensive to deploy at any kind of massive scale. Um, The other thing that gives me hope is the sort of more straightforward technology, which is um, the green energy. I mean, it really is a revolution that's um, taken place over the last 10 years. Um, Wind and solar power, hydropower, especially wind and solar, have become much cheaper, much faster than even their biggest boosters predicted mm-hmm. um, as recently as the beginning of the Obama administration. And that's major. Um, you know, there are some concerns that the state of the electric grid um, and sort of natural geographic limitations on solar and wind mean that we won't be able to get to 100% renewable energy because um, there are places that aren't sunny enough for it, there are places that aren't windy enough for it, um, and that we'll need to develop some dramatically more efficient form of um, energy transportation uh, in order to get to 100% renewable. This is one reason why a lot of people are so excited about Tesla. Um, it's not just that this is an electric car company and if we go all electric with cars, that'll make a big difference. It's also that the batteries that they're developing could actually be the key to transporting right, um, right. solar power over large distances. So that that also gives me a lot of hope. Um, and, you know, just the, from the big picture, I feel like a lot of people, um, especially the climate scientists that I spoke to, you know, this is the one home we have. And the planet is, you know, there are certain people who are trying to um, engineer trips to other planets and colonies on other planets as a way of um, sort of hedging our bets. But I think Hawking, ultimately, right? yes, yes. yeah, um, I think ultimately, you know, we're, we're going to be here. We're going to be, um, we're going to be living m- many billions of us on this planet. And I hope that it doesn't get to the point where 
for instance, parts of the equator or the, or the tropics become uninhabitable because of heat. Um, but even if we do that, I think that we'll we'll figure out a way to survive and endure. Um, so I I have to you know I guess I have to count myself as an optimist and that I I don't think that um, you know I don't think that the planet will become literally uninhabitable. I just think there's a there's a decent chance that it becomes really life becomes really difficult for some people, mm-hmm. uh, much more difficult than it is already. Yes, yeah, sadly, those that are uh, most vulnerable, obviously, uh, children and the elderly. Let me, I was going to ask. As and the a, poor, I would, I would yes, ask the poor. Yes, of course, absolutely, I mean, uh, right, absolutely. Yes, in fact, the Obama report made that point uh, exceptionally well. Um, let me, I was going to ask, as a going out question, ask you about uh, your thoughts on the Gaia hypothesis, but that I thought was getting us a little far afield. So as a closing out question, uh, what's next in this regard? Do you, are, are you going to develop this work further? Sometimes these wind up becoming monographs. Uh, you're going to work further on the subject? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been I've been talking to some um, some book publishers about possibly turning it into a book or, or remodeling it in some way. And I also think, um, you know, I was just last night I saw um, I saw the the new Al Gore movie and I interviewed him after the um, after the screening. And I think that um, I'll probably be doing a fair amount of that kind of public quasi advocacy work going forward, um, speaking, going to conferences. And, you know, in the, in the big picture, um, you know, it's, it's been interesting. I've had a lot of friends and readers, um, respond to the article by saying, you know, what can I do? How can I change my own life to make a difference? And I think that there's a kind of natural inclination to worry about personal choices, you know, Mm -hmm. whether, whether the car you buy is electric or gas fueled, whether you eat beef, which is a major contributor to Nothing, at least right. in the U.S., yes. but, yeah, um, and how often you fly, um, those kinds of things. For me, in the big picture, all of those choices are really trivial compared to um, the force of political action and political activation. And so, you know, I think the mo- you, you mentioned earlier that um, in the last presidential cycle, it's really a shame not a single question mm-hmm. at any of the debates was posed about climate and really climate was, you know, at best a kind of fourth or fifth order political priority during the campaign. And I think that by far the most important thing that we can do as concerned citizens is to agitate to make it a real first order priority for our representatives and then also to signal around the world that we are concerned about this in the same way that, you know, we'd be concerned about um, a great recession or about nuclear war, um, that the, this is, this needs to be, should be at the forefront of, um, the, of our politics and part of the way that we talk about every aspect of our politics from economic policy, to energy policy, um, defense you know, policy. Yes. yes. All, yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating how engaged the U S military is on this question because they're just naturally, you know, realists and um, also need to prepare for worst-case scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's that's a big part of the story too. It's it's um, even even though we we tend to think of the military as a relatively conservative institution within the um, federal government, they've actually been sort of leading the charge on climate um, because, like I said, they're realists um, and they you know they know it'll be a lot harder for the U.S. to play the role of world's policeman if you know. There are 100 million climate refugees, and um, 
you know, many states destabilized by famine and um, water shortages, which yeah, yes. mm-hmm. um, all those things are, are quite possible, if not, um, if not likely. So per your mention of Gore's movie, it uh, was out last Friday, an inconvenient sequel. So I'm glad you mentioned it. I was going to try to work that in. With that, uh, Dave, we're at our, our time boundary. I want to say first, I, I appreciate your being very generous with your time, so thank you. And uh, I'd like to, again, applaud you for your effort here. I hope it, um, it causes you to do further work on this subject. Um, but yet again, I do want to say thank you for your time. It was a pleasure. My, my pleasure. Thank you so much. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.